2: Hello and welcome to Nothing Concrete, the Mm -hmm. Barbican podcast. Uh, This is Inspired, a series where an artist invites someone who's influenced their creative lives to share the stories behind their connection. Mm -hmm. We are Sugar and Dread. I am Jeremiah Sugar J. Brown, a writer and
3: performer and a Barbican Young Poet alum. And I am Gabriel Akamo. I'm a poet, actor, facilitator, creator, producer and also a Barbican Young Poets alum. Uh, in this episode, we are speaking to Durisu. Dirisu. Uh, he is an award-winning actor uh, working across theatre, film and television. Uh, he's trained extensively with the National Youth Theatre and his credits for stage include One Night in Miami at the Donmar Warehouse, The Brothers Size at the Young Vic and the titular role in Coriolanus by the RSC, which also featured on the stage of the Barbican itself. On screen, Chope's recent work includes,
2: wait for it, the horror film, His House, uh, for which he has received a nomination for Best Actor at the 2021 British Independent Film Awards, as well as a nomination for Best Actor in a Horror Movie at the inaugural Critics' Choice Super Awards. Cheers! He is -hmm. due to appear in the sci-fi thriller, Tides, drama film, Mothering Day, and Silent Night with Keira Knightley in 2021. Chope can also be seen as Elliot Finch, Badman in the television crime series Gangs of London by
3: Pulse mm-hmm. Films. We invited Shokpei because we've both seen his work firsthand in Coriolanus at the Barbican and uh, just inspired by his, by his journey. We wanted to have a longer chat with him. Hello, and you are here with First
2: Name Sugar, Second Name Dread. And um, yeah, we are we are in the building, we are in the place, and uh, who who are we here with, Gabriel? We are
3: here. We are here with the amazing, the phenomenal Chopair Dirisu. Hello. Yes. <laughs> I'm honoured to be here, especially with such an introduction,
4: guys. Thank you. <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh man, we haven't even started. We haven't even started yet. Uh, what's what's this about? What's this about, Jeremiah? Um yeah
2: we're, we're we're here we've got the privilege of being being with Shopei um we're going to talk we're going to ask you a variety of different questions i hope you're ready um mm-hmm. but we just we just want to talk we want to uh want to chill so i guess we've got like there's a few things that we sort of wanted to touch on like a few topic areas um heritage upbringing background your ideas for legacy and yes. like leaving an impact um the impact of the audience on you and we were thinking to start with heritage and upbringing so Gabriel if you wanted to
3: yeah great uh, I know you've touched on this kind of somewhat in um, in kind of previous interviews that you've done. Uh, so you've, you've kind of talked about coming from a Yoruba background, coming from a Nigerian Christian household and you know, growing up here. How has that kind of influenced, influenced you kind of as an actor, as a, as a person, as an artist?
4: The first thing that came to mind actually was not necessarily like a glowing positive. Mm. It was that there's a certain, what's the word, measuredness I think that I approach my career with or a certain, um, not reticence, but there's like a, maybe there's an added level of self doubt or just like needed to be even more self-assured than certain people need to be because of, it's not something that I was encouraged to do from when I was young, you know? I was not like, they weren't like, oh, you want to be a creative or you want to be an actor, musician, go and do whatever you want. You know, we'll support you. That was never That was never in the lexicon of my parents coming yeah. up. It was all about being professional, being a doctor, lawyer, all of the same old African tropes. Um, but I know I've learned this come from a really good place. I think from when I was younger, it was about, it felt a little bit like suppression or a little bit like uh, straightjacketing. But um, it was because they wanted their children's life to be better than theirs. So... Now that I have that understanding, I'm able to appreciate what my parents were trying to do for me and what they did do for me growing up. Yeah. It does mean that, you know, like they say, if you can see it, you can be it. Yes. I think I need that a lot more. I need to be able to see something before I can believe that I can do something. Mm-hmm. And that even goes into the parts that I play, you know? One of the next parts I'm going on to play is, is, is set in history, but the role itself is quite fictional. And there was a little bit of a struggle that I was having because you you don't see black people in those roles in period dramas. You can't, It's very hard to find them in history at all. Mm-hmm. And like, mm-hmm. because as an actor, everything you do, you want to be based in truth. Yeah. Like there's a little bit of, whereas I know if my parents were just like, yeah, do this, do that. I'll be like, yeah, it doesn't matter. I've got the freedom to go into these roles that don't exist and I'm going to create them, you know? So that's... Um, that's definitely an effect that my upbringing has had. Um, but also, it's given me this drive to be excellent. It's necessary that I exceed and excel. You know, they say, you'll be the head and not the tail, head and shoulders above your peers. All of these prayers, you know. <laughs> They're still rattling around in the back of my head. And I have this, it's like a driving. It's a bit of fuel or energy for me to continue striving and continue, like, pushing myself if I'm not competing with others I'm competing with myself I'm competing mm. with history you know yeah. so um, that desire for of my parents for their children to be excellent and to be comfortable and to be settled and to also be leaders of their generation you know I, all of them are coming back now <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, like that's, that's, that's inbuilt into me mm. so whilst there is a little bit of um, checking of oneself there's also this fuel and fire to to always succeed. So those are the two things I think um, philosophically that my upbringing have given me definitely.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think I'm, I'm sure we can definitely relate to that. Um, personally, kind of, I'm also also from a Nigerian, Christian, Yoruba background. So, mm. yeah. I, <laughs> those those sentiments, you've heard
4: them many times. <laughs> That's it, exactly. <laughs> exactly.
3: I mean, I'm still hearing them, you know, cause obviously with the, with the pandemic, um, i li- 'm living at home with the parents and so and so those things still are still things that are kind of repeated and still still echo know in, in the walls of the house. that kind of leads on nicely onto kind of two two other things that we wanted to ask you about kind of on the topic of being kind of a a leader in your field and in some ways tra- trailblazing and kind of following that that ethic that you grew up with um, how does how do you think that influences um kind of in terms of being an actor, right? Because you said you said uh it's not really something that you grew up with, um, or it's not it wasn't really something that was um encouraged. And yeah, do you think do you think that's how's that impacted kind of your sense of kind of a legacy, or do you feel kind of a sense of responsibility of um in your role as an actor in terms of in terms of opening um or kind of being visible and opening opening mm. that path for people who might have come from your from a similar background to you.
4: Yeah, I think it goes back to that whole that like, if you can see it, you can be it, um phrase. But also, it's not just for the person who's seeing it, it's for their family or for their parents, especially. Mm-hmm. I was working a lot um about diversity in grassroots creativity, especially in acting like National Youth Theatre and stuff like that. And one of the biggest demographics that we found that are totally alienated or not represented in youth theater is like East Asian actors. Mm-hmm. And that, if you think about them, like I don't want to lean into any stereotypes or anything, but my experience is that even more so than African parents, they, East Asian parents are very much like you're here to be a professional. We're sending you to England to study so that you can come back with skills and like, uh, like real jobs, etc. And also because East Asian actors are not as represented as even black actors or South Asian actors on screen, they don't have anyone where they could be like, oh, well look, I mean, now they've got people like Henry Golden and um, Mm. uh, Gemma Chan, Constance Wu, like you can list them off. Thankfully the world is changing. But um, without people to point to their parents and be like, look, we are represented and we can be successful in this space let me try, that, is, that, that, that battle of convincing your parents to support you is a lot harder. Yes. So bringing that back, like, yes, there have been lots of successful black actors in the generations above me. They may have had to go to America, maybe that some of them have stayed, etc. But I would like to think that my, myself, my generation, we are, if the door is left ajar by the ones before, we're pushing it wide open for parents to really see that their children can be successful in the creative arts. And I Mm. think that with the plethora of like recording artists that we have that are black or of Nigerian descent, to be fair, you'll probably find someone in the creative industry that came from your village now, as a Nigerian, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So you're probably like two degrees of separations away from somebody. Yeah. yeah, my mom definitely knows that Dave's mom or something like that, you know, <laughs> it's possible. So because of yeah. that, it definitely reduces the barriers, cultural barriers to entry for um, people into acting. And then I do embrace that um, responsibility. Because I know how difficult it was for me to convince my parents, that this is something that I want to do. So if I can make it easier for the next Denzel or the next, you know, someone, below me, then I that that would be that's a wonderful legacy to leave by I think that's
3: that's something that I've um, I was I always think about the usefulness of kind of my work. Um, and again kind of for better or worse that kind of sits at the back of at the back of my my head. Um, as as Jeremiah will well know we've had we've had many <laughs> many anxious WhatsApp conversations over Uh, uh, kind of thing um but i think i think kind of the it's the the if you see it you can believe it or if you see it you can be it is a really is a really kind of um pertinent thing and i think that that leads nicely onto what the questions that jeremiah specifically wanted to ask you um Mm -hmm. do you want to do you want to take it away
2: yeah just i guess this comes in two parts but the first part being thinking about like the makeup of the audience um and how that impacts you as an actor um yeah so the presence of black people um or other like kind of just the presence of the people that are engaging with your work and how does that affect you as an actor um often predominantly working in Potentially, well, I don't want to assume, but you know, working in various settings that might just be predominantly white or Mm -hmm. those kinds of things, how does that um, impact you as an actor? Also, thinking about maybe that question is more prevalent with stage work, but also thinking about the audiences for film and television and how does that affect you as well?
4: I mean, this is like this podcast is linked with a barbican. And the one time I got to perform there was with the RSC in the Royal Coriolanus. And I think this is the, like, as soon as you asked me that question, this came into mind for two reasons. One was that (sighs) I've got good friends, man. Uh, A lot of my friends (laughs) decided that they were all going to get together without me in a WhatsApp group and discuss that. Oh, we're all going to go on the same night. Yeah. Don't tell Chopin we're going to be there. And... It was like a little section of the black London acting acting community, guys and girls and elders and youngers, you know, they all just decided to come to the theater on that one night and I had no idea. I had no idea, Mm. nobody told me. Mm. And then when we got to the curtain call, all I could hear was, (laughs) My goodness, I almost ran off the stage into the audience. I was just (laughs) overjoyed, I was elated. And to think that my people, were writing for me that night in yeah. a in what is it? It's like a concert hall, man. How many times do mm-hmm. you get black people performing in concert halls unless you're like the Chinooka Orchestra? Yeah. You know? And then it was Shakespeare, which is very stereotypically not for us. I mean, we're trying to do a lot of work to change that because Shakespeare was a working class writer, writing mm-hmm. in working class voices, but he's been co-opted by the higher up mm-hmm. to tell us that it's not for us and it's a lie. But, Exactly. Still, some people feel alienated from it, especially young non white people and then at the r s c which is at the pinnacle of that, um, which is trying hard with this engagement but not always successful, to think that I had like a section it felt it felt like the audience was full of black people that evening mm. um, so that i mean it 's not necessarily answer your question it 's the reverse how about like, how does the audience affect me, you know knowing that my art can go that far reach those people can be celebrated by that people by my own people you know is mm-hmm. um is is it's, it's like it's a joy overflowing because maybe it's to do with the way that I grew up or something but sometimes you can feel in certain creative industries like you have to compromise a bit of yourself or mm-hmm. a section of your blackness in order to fit in and take the opportunities that are given to you. So in that that moment, I felt vindicated. I didn't feel like, I felt whole, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think also specifically with that part, like the casting of that production was very interesting in that there was a very clear separation between the upper class and the lower class. Mm -hmm. And in the upper classes, I was the only black man, Mm -hmm. you know? There were no women of color. And there was another Asian man who was playing a very, very small role, almost subordinate. So the way the story of Coriolanus goes, he's kind of manipulated by people. His mother, his Mm -hmm. like standing father figure, uncle kind of guy, the whole state are just like playing him as a puppet and wanting to do what they want him to do. And he's like, no, I'm going to be me completely. And it was, I struggled with it after the first read through actually. and I haven't spoken to many people about this, Mm. but it was like, oh, actually, if you look at the optics of this, this is a solitary black man who is effectively being uh, adopted or co-opted by white society and is being made to behave in a certain way or conform to their ideals. And it's not too much of a stretch to think of how much like black people are made to change their voices or change their behavior or their mannerisms mm. in order to fit into white society or into the society of wherever the diaspora is, um, located. So then to think that I was going through this existential raci- racial sort of mm. struggle about this play and then it was only really gonna be seen by white people, mm. it, it was a little bit, oh no, like what's going on here? What am I doing? What can I do to, to to elevate my people in this um, discussion, this interrogation? Yeah, so like I think sometimes, regardless of the story you're telling, you have to be conscious of who's receiving the story. Mm, yeah, and whether or not it's helpful, is the story that you're telling the right story, or is it told in the right way for the people who are receiving it? And that goes not just for white people, but for your own people as well or mm. people who look a little bit like you, but not exactly like you. The greatest joy would be to completely break down the access to theatre, the barriers, the cultural barriers that make people not want to engage with it or not want to engage with Shakespeare or anything. And then like, we'll create this utopia where actually I'm not really thinking about the audience because the audience reflects my life outside of the theatre. Mm, mm. And I'm not as concerned about these racial questions because either the audience will answer it with me or nobody's thinking about it because we're all equal so we're really looking at race
2: it's brilliant because so the root of that question me and gabriel went to see corallianus when it was at the barbican oh, um, wow!
4: thank you so much for coming through
2: we, we went to see it and we remembered like afterwards um yeah, so we were standing up and clapping. Gabriel is, Gabriel is Gabriel, isn't it? So whenever Gabriel is in a room, you mm-hmm. you know that Gabriel's in a room. So But we're, we're there, we're clapping, we're making noise. And we both remembered you sort of like seeing us and like nodding, acknowledging us, and we were like, yeah. Um, and that's something that we both took away. And sort of as we were leaving, it was us thinking about it because we were aware that we were like the only Black people in the audience as well and so mm-hmm. when that happened it was something that we've kind of both sort of gone away and thought about we've both performed in situations as well where the audience does not look like us where mm-hmm. it's, it's you know it's a majority um it's just there's it's it's mostly white and we've mm-hmm. had those kinds of experiences and yeah, so it was it was just interesting that even as we asked you that question the thing that came back to you was your people being like yo we're setting it up we're going to come mm-hmm. to this space and um yeah those kinds of things are joyful. We went to see one of my boys graduate and he graduated from Imperial and we when everyone's clapping politely and when he stepped on stage it was it was it was it was it was, it was, it was, it was everything. It was everything it has to and be, you
4: know? I think we really yeah. need to take up more space in these in these spaces, just like it, it, never reducing ourselves in order mm-hmm. to just sort of fit in with what is right or what is the conformist. Like, I think I make I make a point of that. Even if I'm on my ones, if I go and see someone who like would respond to that sort of celebration on stage, regardless of how white the space is, I make sure i have my authentic self and I connect with that person because I know what it did for me. Yes. That that joy is revolutionary, you know. Mm -hmm. And if we can inspire joy in ourselves by being ourselves, then we need to do it more. We need to do it more.
2: You were also, you were in His House, which, ah, beautiful, amazing film. Yeah, as a writer as well, the writing in that film, and there's certain, there's some lines that really, I was just watching it and I was like, this is, it's poetic. Like just everything on Mm -hmm. top of
3: the performances, on top of all of that. For me, watching it, it definitely it brought to mind kind of those those old nollywood horror films. Um, okay, <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, don't just, let Remy hear know. this; he'll come
4: for
3: you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I say this. I say this. Let him land. Let him land. <laughs> yeah, just, exactly. Let him land. Let him land, land. In that, <laughs> in that, it was it was drawing on there's there's the there's the um the figure of the of the apeth from. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Su- Sudanese uh, folklore, um, mm-hmm. and you know, in my in my brief research, it's I didn't realize how prominent the apeth was, and like East Af- East African, um, you know, traditional traditional beliefs and storytelling is not something that's that has been on my radar um, because mm-hmm. obviously being West African, that's where a lot of my focus was. Um, and so, how was it? How was it kind of for you being in being in a story that's being told on Netflix? Um, to a mass audience that is touching on kind of African uh, folklore, African traditional beliefs Mm. and mythologies and that kind of thing. What does, how does, how does that um, in your, or does that in your mind kind of connect to the whole thing about, uh, um, about audiences and connecting with um, where you're from and kind of Mm. what you see and how, yeah, just talk to us a little bit about that.
4: I think all art is a wonderful medium for sharing, and sharing Mm. culture um especially and i think netflix is an incredible extension of that to the nth degree and what i really love about what they're doing over at netflix hq is that they have set up an african division you know and they've commissioned Mm. writers and producers from all over the continent to create like high quality african content i mean queen sono is an example of that Mm. um and that's about this uh for those who haven't seen it, it's about this South African, like James Bond, basically, but she's a woman played by Pearl Fuse. Um, And it's excellent, like just to see the vibrancy of Africa through the screens, because they go all over Africa as well with that mm. series. Um, and yeah, it's not without its flaws, but what piece of art isn't, you know? So it definitely fills me with pride to be able to be sharing culture from the continent of africa with the rest of the world because it was distributed internationally and netflix is a wonderful sort of agent of that and it works in all different ways as well you like, you can watch ukrainian films on netflix if you're looking for it it's all there yeah. very easy to find so that figures cult, cult, folklore figures like the Ape and um, many more to come that are being shared on such a global platform. It's, uh, it's definitely a step, it's a giant leap for mankind, you know? And yeah. to be a part of that is, um, is definitely an honor. And it's sort of like the work I wanna do. I wanna do more of that. You know, Like sharing our life experiences and making people feel seen and sharing those stories and giving a voice to people who don't normally get a voice. In this case, refugees, for example. Like, mm. I think that's what that's the sort of work
2: that I might be doing. I guess as a as a follow-up sort of directly on that question and you sort of talking about the roles that you would like to to do and like the things that you would like to sort of take on. Um, how 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 is it for you sort of selecting what you do and don't do and making those decisions now um, and sort of yeah your power and control in in that in that sort of experience and those decisions going forward.
4: Definitely earlier on in my career, it was a case of like, take what you're giving, be grateful for it and do your best. And I still like maintain a lot of that. You know, I remember there was a Luton town football club manager who once said that like, we can, all we can do is control the controllables, you know? Mm. And then everything else is sort of, is sort of uh, up to luck. At the beginning, you can only take what you're given. That said, you can go out and make your own work. So maybe I'm talking nonsense. But early doors, it was a case of like, if I get seen for it, I'll do my best and try my best, but I'm not going to say no to anything. And there's an element of that that I like to keep because there might be something that I look at and it's just like, oh, this isn't really me. This is what I want to do. But it's going to be a massive challenge if I've got to go so far away from my comfort zone to achieve this thing. Um, to the point where it's scary. Maybe it's the things that I should be doing because if I wanna push myself as an actor and get better, then those are the roles that I should be after. But also I think there is a point now where I'm building a career. I'm not no longer really laying the foundations of that. I'm sort of deciding what kind of actor do I wanna be? Is it, do I wanna be an action movie actor and keep doing those things? Or do I wanna be a rom-com actor? <laughs> And personally, I would love to not be able to be pigeonholed into any of those categories because of the breadth and diversity of my work. But in terms of things I definitely would say yes to, there's a project that came on through my agent recently that was just way more as a, of an artistic exploration than anything that I'd ever read before. Like, there are no lines in the whole film. And I was like, I want to do this because this is this isn't going to be played in cinemas. This is going to be played in like orchestra halls, you know, because they want to put music next to it or play the music live. I was just like, oh, this this, this is exciting because it's not your standard. Like, don't get me wrong, I'd love to be in the Marvel superhero universe as well, but it's not your standard like, oh, we're just going to go to the movies, see this film art, it's nice. Like, what is the next step of moving pictures, you know? What else can we do with it? how do we heighten the art? Someone that's playing with the colors on screen, you know? At the end of the day, if I read the script and the story is interesting, because if even the character's not like the best, or the most developed, then I've got to do my job and flesh that character out in its performance, you know? I find those little nuances that make that character interesting. But if the story arc is something that I'm excited by, then that's a project that I want to work on.
3: i'm gonna i'm gonna take cycle it back just a little bit um mm. and ask about ask some questions about your kind of relationship to training as an actor who kind of didn't go to drama school yeah what is yeah what's what's your relationship what's your relationship to that in terms of especially i guess working working in theater um i guess i guess that it can feel like i found in my own experience anyway that you i felt i felt like there's kind of a gap or I've been very self-conscious about having not been to drama school. Um, and so, and I, was wondering, I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about, about that experience or kind of how, how the way you trained and the way you came into the industry has kind of more affected or shaped kind of your path through it.
4: Well, I definitely shared, well, no, I'll be very honest with you. In my experience, there have been times where I've been scared because I didn't go to drama mm. school. Like, especially when I went to the RSC, I was just like, oh, you do voice work every day for three years. Someone mentioned it's like a thousand hours worth of voice to make sure that your voice can fill this space and that you're maintaining your instrument, you know? That you're not gonna run out of steam, you're not gonna lose your voice or anything like that. And they had to take me aside from early. I was in rehearsals maybe two or three months before everybody else so that they could like, give me these voice works, do them every day meet up with a voice teacher, See, make sure that I'm going to be able to carry that space. It wasn't even a case of like, they made me feel insecure about it. I was already insecure about it. Learning what I was competing with, like there was a, it was humbling. It made me make sure that I was on job, you know, taking all of the opportunities to learn and grow and develop that I could do so that I wouldn't be like found out or I wouldn't be a fraud on stage, you know? And I think that's one of the biggest things that, that has done for me it's like oh now i'm i'm even more eager to learn because i haven't had that spec- specified time of training and learning and honing one's craft so i'm just like always looking for avenues and what can i learn from you what did you do that that was really interesting like uh, maybe i'll bring that into my performance so the way that you're like holding your eyes or like looking just off camera like all of these things are like, so so rich so learning on the job i think if you haven't learned before, not to say that people who've been to drama school are just hella like relaxed and don't care. I'm sure I know people who are constantly driven, constantly learning. But um, for having that feeling of needing to catch up made me keep that even more.
2: The fact that you, the Gangs of London, and his house came out in the same in the same year is beautiful mm-hmm. to me because they they're, they're mm-hmm. so they're so different. I guess what. In terms of your approach and your preparation for both and sort of the training element that kind of goes into it practically, but also from like a, a mental standpoint and getting into it for like Gangs of London, but then also just the differences or the nuances as you approach something like His House.
4: There's a quote, and I'm going to butcher it, by a theatre practitioner called Peter Brook. And he says, a man walks across an empty stage. And I can't remember what the next part of it is, but basically it's already a performance, you know? Mm. Without words, without lighting, without anything. He is being observed and that makes it a piece of theatre, you know? And what I took from that is that, and this happens in life, it's where prejudice comes from. So much of your story is inferred before you open your mouth, just from how you're dressed, how you walk, where you're looking, how you hold your shoulders. You know, your physicality is such an important part of storytelling. And so when it came to doing preparation for gangs learning and they were like, okay, cool. We want you to learn the choreography. I was like, okay, I need to learn about his history. Like, yes, his father was a boxer. He was in the military. This is the sort of hand-to-hand combat that he would do. And sort of like kept drilling that to the point where my body and the way I'd hold myself and the way he walked through a room was indicative of that sort of thing. Those are those things that are like super nuanced, and maybe the camera doesn't pick them up. But it's important for me to have them in my performance, so that I'm doing my job. I'm not just giving the camera what it needs and then like taking breaks afterwards. Mm. And the same for his house. I think we actually shot his house before we shot Gangs of London. But because of who he is, where he's come from, he doesn't need muscles. He doesn't need this physicality. It's not his job. He worked in a bank. If anything, he would have been a bit thinner than than he is in the film because of the sort of journey that he's been on. Uh so yeah, all of those things I think are really important to building character and like present presenting the story. Uh they are for me anyway. And I think maybe you see that stuff more in theatre because you're getting full body all the time
2: training roots, pause into the industry. Um yes. and I think there's there's a lot of those out there. Um But, yeah, I guess advice in terms of maybe practically, but also just in terms of um, mentality, approaches, Mm. things to be wary of, um, things that um, helped you, or perhaps, like, if you were looking at um, past shopping and being like, hmm, this is kind of... These are the things I would want to impress upon you before you began um, upon this journey.
4: Mm. I think it's always good to remember why you're doing it. Some people are doing it just to be famous. Some people are doing it to earn lots of money. Given how wildly different people's experiences of their careers can be, uh, it, it is hard to sustain your discipline and your enthusiasm if those are the reasons that you're doing it. Have that reason, if you love it, it's because you love it. Remember exactly that moment that you loved it and let that feed I can tell you the exact moment. So I went to university, studied economics, but I was doing plays every time. And I had this like report that I was supposed to do over the Christmas period about child labor in third world developing countries. And I was doing it, it was fine, but I was sat there in my uni room, surrounded by all these papers, just like, if I choose, this could be the rest of my life. And I know that this isn't what I enjoy doing, but I'm good at this and I can do it, but, I don't know if this is what I want the rest of my life to look like. Mm. And then Easter that year, second year, my mum took me into the kitchen, and just like, why are you depressed? Straight up, like, (laughs) like, why are you moping around? What's wrong? I can tell something's wrong. Freaking mums never miss, my gosh. She forced me to think about what was wrong in my life. And I think it was that realization. And I was just like, I'm not enjoying doing my economics. I'm enjoying everything else about uni apart from my course. And then that summer, I went to the National Youth Theatre and I did a play with them in London. And my whole disposition changed, you know. I was entirely lifted. I was happy with people who were like-minded. I met one of my best friends that year, Ken Musu. And we were creating art and we were performing theatre. I was just like, I'm happy now. This is, this is what's making me happy. And then the year after that, I was like, I'm not applying for any internships. I'm not applying for any, like, year in industry you know them placements i'm not doing it when i leave my course i'm going to hand my parents my degree and i'm going to see what acting looks like you know Mm -hmm. and those moments are what i think about when i'm so happy that i made this decision when i'm struggling i'm just like why am i even doing this thing man i've got a degree let me go and go to the city canary wharf is just there let me make some money and whenever I'm looking at scripts, and it's hard, it's like, but this makes me happy. This, or doing the study, and I study harder on my scripts than I ever did to any of my exams, you know? <laughs> and it's because it, it gives me joy to like, oh, I'm gonna find this nuance and mine in the richness of the text, you know? Mm. Um, so yeah, definitely find those moments or find that thing that's gonna keep you going because um, you're gonna need it a lot. You're gonna need it a lot. Um, And it's not going to be easy. I don't say that to dissuade anybody, but just to, if you come in with that knowledge, then you're not going to be sidelined when you're not working for seven months, you know? And then also find other ways to be creative. Even if you're making music and it's not coming to you just then, like try and write something that isn't lyrics. Like maybe it's just a poem, maybe it's a short story and see how, because everything works together to create something else, you know? In terms of pathways, and access and learning opportunities, I would not be here without the National Youth Theatre of Great Britain. I joined there when I was 15, and I was there until I was 22. Um, and I, was, I did something with them every single year. And with that, as with all things, the more you put into it, the more you're gonna get out of it. I was like, oh, I'll do an assistant for this, or I'll volunteer for that, and I'll do this and I'll do that. And then they were just like, okay, cool, man, just, (laughs) you're doing too much. (laughs) And then they, they they in turn elevated me because it's like, we don't elevate this guy. He's just not going to leave us alone, you know?
3: Um,
4: So they gave me the platform to perform in front of people. They gave me the confidence. They gave me a lot of skills, gave me the opportunities. And they gave me the belief that I could do it because they were giving me those opportunities. So um, I'm very, very grateful to that institution. And I would encourage everyone who is under the age of 20. I don't know how long it goes on for now, but yeah. the earlier you get into it, the more you're going to get out of it. That's it. Everyone That's to audition for the MIT if they want to be an actor. But then again, what's wonderful about MIT is that it's not just for people who want to act. Yeah, It was really like an excellent summer holiday course for me to meet people from all over the country, you know, meet different kinds of people, not just like people from ENDS or people who look like you. It's, it's, it's wonderful. Um, and also it just, it gives a lot of people confidence. And it's mm-hmm. just about opening yourself up to new opportunities and new experiences and new people. And all of those things, all of those experiences and opportunities and people that you meet will all funnel back into your creativity some way. So the MIT was really just a way of opening myself up to the world. And I think that's another important piece of advice that art reflects life so you have to live as much of your life as possible in order to get that into your art.
2: yeah there are so many points i think in that answer that would yeah. just yeah that was perfect because <laughs> even as you were you were talking about um like remembering those moments and then you were you were like yeah because you were thinking like I've got my degree I can go and do economics I was like raw I've been there like I've I've been there like I was like um you know and and thinking those kinds of things and those sort of thoughts and thinking like ah actually what is it that sort of brings me back or what is it that sort of makes me want to keep going and it's it's knowing that like I I do love this and and this is this is that and then also talking about NYT giving you that belief that you can do it Um, and I know for for myself in regards to like poetry and sort of that kind of thing doing Barbican Young Poets with Jacob Samuel Rose and just having that belief Mm. I remember uh, when I got him to sign his poetry book like when I just like it was maybe the first or second year and he signed it and it was uh, something along the lines of like, you're a great poet now and I look forward to the poet you're going to be. Mm. And just that kind of, mm. the people that you meet and the belief that they impart on you and like how important that is and different forms of creativity. Everything
3: that you were kind of saying, I was like, yeah, man. It's funny actually how, our, I think with the three of us, our experiences have really mirrored each other. Like I think it was around a similar time when I was at uni as well. It was kind mm. of sec- second year, slightly later in the year that um, it was when we were talking about our dissertation. And um, I remember they got all the... So I did philosophy, right? We got, they got all the um, philosophy students who are just moving into third year, into, a room, into the a lecture hall, and they gave us these dissertation booklets. And, I, and I'll never forget, they put the booklet in front of me on the table, and I opened this, flicked through, and I closed it, and I just thought, I could not care less. It was. I'm like, surprised you
4: just dashed it off the table. with <laughs> oh, <shit. laughs>
3: All through, all through school, I'm, the plan was not to was not to do this professionally. I remember mm. finishing finishing A levels at, at each stage at GCSE. I was like, okay, I'm not going to do drama. I'm going to do something serious. Something happened. Ended up doing drama GCSE. Mm-hmm. Same thing with A level. Like, yeah. And then I remember my mum being like, "Don't even dream about going to drama school or something like <laughs> this." <laughs> So, something along this lines. That's why I
4: didn't go, man. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, people ask me, like, oh, why didn't you go to drama school? It's like, I t- there are two reasons. One, I didn't know if I was good enough. I didn't want to waste mm. my time. I knew mm. that people said that I was good in my school, but like, that's the difference between going from, I don't know, playing football on your street to playing football in the England team which is the level yes. thing, you know? And then also, don't even drama. Drown drown what? Shut up, your <laughs> stinking mouth. I'm Never gonna die. So I didn't even bother to ask. You know, there's some things you know about your parents. Mm. It's like That's like, it. But you're, you're you're saying that your mom said don't even think about drama
3: school. Yeah, it's it's almost like she saw it before I did because it wasn't even in my mind when she mentioned it un- until she mentioned it, and from that point onwards, I was like what if I did go to drama school maybe and every every time every time I was frustrated with my course which I loved but like it just it just wasn't the career that it it was gonna lead me down was just not something I could do yeah there was always that question at the back of my mind and so acting and theater was always there as a release valve until I Mm -hmm. found myself graduating um, and then coming straight out of uni because I auditioned for NYT in third year of uni and going Mm -hmm. straight into the NYT course um, and now it goes up until the age of twenty six, and so like okay. similarly, yeah, yeah. So similarly, I was, I did something every year that I could because um, my mentality was different. I wasn't coming straight from school, and I think, and I think that's the great thing about about it and about kind of the journeys that we've taken, and about a lot of what you said. Maybe if those things had been encouraged, or maybe if we were more aware of those things, or maybe we wouldn't be kind of sat. At our, at our desks, um, having these conversations as artists, maybe we would have taken kind of different courses. And so there is something about coming to a conscious decision when you're older and they kind of give, they kind of put the stakes behind what you're doing, right? That's mm-hmm. in, you know, because when you're having a difficult time, you kind of remind yourself as to why you're doing it. Um, and your experiences kind of gave you that reason. Do you think, do you think you'd have found yourself kind of, had you decided... Um, on that fateful day to be like, nah, I am going to continue doing this. I am going to gather my papers and, you know, work, go and work in the city. Do you think you'd have found yourself kind of in the art? What would parallel timeline shopping look like?
4: I don't think so, you know, because I, there was a point earlier in my career in which I sort of followed economics still. I used to like look at the exchange rates or look at commodities and like trading and investing. Like that was still sort of interesting to me and it's dropped off. And that makes me feel as though like actually there's only real space for one driving passion. I suppose my other driving passion would be football. So I could see myself more likely working at Arsenal Football Club as some sort of economist than I could at the National Theatre. Because I've got a friend of a friend who is an economist for a theatre producer. So she makes decisions like what price the tickets are sold at and how many people can we expect to come through the door? But I don't think I would have done that because it would have pained me too much that I wasn't actually doing the acting. Mm -hmm. I remember one time when I wasn't acting, I was doing crew work and that's people who make stages or break stages or... And I remember one day I was stationed at the National Theatre to work as crew. And I was like, this is not the the perspective of this building that I wanted. Mm -hmm. And I think Mm -hmm. it would be the same from the office.
3: You mentioned, you mentioned kind of doing other things, doing other things to to keep you, to keep yourself creative and to keep yourself sane. Um, my question, my question for you is what what other things do you do? Um,
4: you know what? I really enjoy playing music, not necessarily making music, but like I've got a piano here, I've got my bass, I've got an acoustic guitar. And every so often, like, it's something I want to improve. It's like another discipline that I want to sort of like have. Um, sharing my children for example mm. so I suppose that's like my alternative outlet uh, and poetry mm. as well I've really recently got into um, poetry but I mm. wrote a lot but more as a, a, a therapy you know it was more of a way of like writing things to get them out of my head so they weren't haunting me anymore mm. Um, mm. but yeah, it's, uh I do enjoy the way Words work.
2: Shope thank you um, yes. so much for joining us. Um, it was it was brilliant talking to you. It no, was no, good no, vibes. It's my pleasure.
4: Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. Really.
2: That was our conversation with Shopei Durisu, wrapping up the series of Inspired on the Barbican podcast, Nothing Concrete. Stay tuned for more weekly episodes from the Barbican by subscribing to Nothing Concrete on ACAST, Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. Peace.